Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week, it's episode 42. And this week, I'm pretty excited about this because we have ultra distance running and cycling legend, Robbie Britton on the call. So normally, typically, I end up doing the introduction and talk about accolades and how wonderful these guests are and what they've done and what they've accomplished. But this week, I'm going to do things a little bit differently because I have a story to tell you. And the story is quite a personal story to me because it's one of those flashbulb moments in my life where I learned a hell of a lot in a short period of time. And I was in the Torino uh, World 24-Hour Championships. And about 18 hours in, and if imagine running a two-kilometer looped course for 18 hours of 24, so you have six hours left to go. And 18 hours in, it's in the middle of the night, and people are pretty destroyed and nobody's talking people are grunting people are lying on the side of the track puking and speaking to trees that don't talk back to them and I looked up ahead and I was running well at this time and I was about 200 kilometers in I looked up ahead and I saw this guy from Great Britain smacking an American on the ass and American man an American guy and uh, so I looked up and I was like what is that that's so different that's something that I wouldn't have expected 18 hours into to run for somebody to be that animated and I ended up making my way up to running with him which was tough because this guy was running well but when I got up there first thing he does is he smacks me on the ass and he says man wow you look great hey you know, I've always wanted to, to go to Canada. Where, where, where do you live in Canada? Um, hey, isn't this all business fun that we're all out here doing this together? And he's just super animated. So that's my first encounter with Robbie Britton. And Robbie and I ended up running for the next two hours together. And I learned a hell of a lot in those next two hours about love, you know, about, about running and really mostly about life. Um, about 10 minutes later, I was talking to Robbie and I said, you know, Robbie, my feet, my knees, my ankles, my, my soul hurts. And I look at you and I don't see that you're in any pain whatsoever. And all Robbie did was he laughed like the Joker in Batman. And he said, you know, Dave, I'm not in pain. And I don't think that you really are either. And he said, you know, okay, think about it this way within a five kilometer radius of where we currently are right now. We're in a downtown Torino park, a populated area of Italy. And he said, there would be at least a hundred people that would die to give you their current level of pain for your current level of pain. And he said, think about it, man. There are people who, um, you know, are there, there's going to be somebody that's going to be bearing their three-year-old child next week because they died in a car crash, or there's somebody putting a, a gun to their head because they can't, you know, think of any other way to solve their problems. And he said, you know what, Dave, there's real problems in the world. And, you know, they're not blisters. And I really hope that you have, you know, loved ones, friends, family that are there for you when you really need them. But today you're celebrating the fact that you can run for 24 hours and you're going to do your best. And I'm going to do my best. And I want to kick your ass and you want to kick mine and let's do this. Uh, Robbie ended up kicking my ass. He ended up finishing in third place that day with 261 kilometers. I ended up finishing sixth place with 257. 
But I remember with about half an hour left to go in the 24 hour race, 23 hours and 30 minutes in, Robbie passed me at a blistering pace. I think it was like a 405 per kilometer pace. And, and he ended up finishing third place in the world with 261 kilometers. And I think that Robbie wasn't the strongest runner on the course that day, but I think he was the greatest human on the course because he was able to put things together when it came to positivity and perspective. And like I've never seen in this sport full of positivity and perspective, Robbie stands out. So that being said, I would like to welcome Robbie Britton to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Robbie. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. That's some introduction. I feel like I won't better live up to that now. It'll be a, like from this point onwards, like just be a disappointment for the listeners. <laughs> I think you're going to be fine. Yeah, wow. I was fun listening to that for me as well. And, you know, I don't think we find our way there just um, casually. So, well, there's a little bit of humility, Robbie, in your statement. What I think is probably sort of important to the to the conversation is to sort of go back a little bit and think about how did you get there. So there's like we'll say two paths to that interaction. One is your, you know, your physical running and how did you get to be a good runner? Did you run in high school or college or something? And then secondly, what influences did you have in your life that gave you this worldview which says yeah, this is somewhat of a privileged opportunity that I have. This is a high class problem. You know, this is a first world issue. Um, yeah, so maybe if you give a little bit of your story and intersect those two elements, that'd be great. I mean, I guess, I, so as a youngster, I played a lot of sport, played a lot of soccer, a um, bit of rugby, a little bit of American football, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't a runner. Um, there was one common theme in all those other sports is that my lack of actual ability was made up for by my amount of running I did. So I, I was a runner in that regard, but more for necessity. Um, and then I came to the sport quite late. Well, I came to running late. I suppose as an ultra running, ultra running in general, people do join quite late. I started, I ran my first uh, marathon around 22, 23. And I wasn't a competitive athlete as a, as a youngster. I, I competed as to the best of my ability but I think just having to a chance to run for your country at a at a later age uh, really does instill that kind of gratefulness that the opportunities come along because it could have been that I, I another 10-15 years down the line I discovered this innate ability to to run in circles for a whole day at a time and I missed the opportunity so I guess it's like if anything we, we, we all if everyone's good at something and but they never find out that what they're good at, then that's a real shame. So I'm just grateful that I, I found a niche sport where there's like participation's low enough and my ability is high enough that I can compete on the world stage. So, <laughs> so it's, yeah, just found my place. So yeah, that's why I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I love that. I, I love the the self-deprecating humor, and and uh, you know that's something that I've I've grown to love about you, Robbie. Is that you know, you, you do that. Have you always been um, quite self-deprecating? Do you, do, you, do you, you know, have you always been, you know, a person that lives in a state of, of joy? Um, you know, wh where are you with that? Like, have you always been this, 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 this kind of character? Yeah, I've always been pretty cheerful. I mean, you've got to be positive, just whatever life throws at you, you've got to kind of look at the best side of it to, to get the most out of it. Um, I suppose like self-deprecating, I, I, I realise as well that our sport 
I, I coach better athletes than I am. I, I, I edit a running website where we, we work with like middle distance, 5,000 meter marathon runners. And you realize that, yeah, the ability side of things is very different. So like even in 24 hour running, I meddled with 261 kilometers, right? Which is, which for me was a great day. But even then it's just, I don't know if it's self-deprecating to appreciate that the level of performance was good enough for that day, but it's still not like, it's still a whole marathon behind the world record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ran yeah, across absolutely. country like uh, two weekends ago and Jacob over there and he was six minutes ahead of me over 10 K. So <laughs> puts it in perspective, but like, yeah, I, like <laughs> I'm good at what I do. I get the best out of my own ability, but I'm by no means a, uh, like a, like absolutely world-class runner. I'm just not kidding myself. That's all it is. Yeah, and I guess that the also Robbie, maybe maybe it's also a part that you 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 don't take yourself too 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 seriously. You know, I think that that's one of the problems that a lot of you know people that get involved in ultra distance sports, either cycling or running, they go in and they're they're just so driven and they're so so um, um, competitive and they're so you know they're they're really hard on themselves. Do you find that at times that you kind of you're just out there having a good time? You're you know stop and take a photograph, laugh, you know, like on the Torino course with you. You know, there wasn't really a, a person that we passed by that you didn't you know throw a, a, a positive comment to, or you know there was a good looking girl that you didn't flirt with, or you know it, it was super fun. And it, you, so maybe that's it. Maybe maybe you just weren't taking yourself too too seriously. I guess you could look at it two ways, right? Like I, I'm enjoying it. I'm doing something I love, right? So I'm just, I'm making the most of the opportunity. The other side of it is, is purely performance related because that's how I get through every hour. That's how I get around every lap is by, by me- messing around with the French team, by chatting to the, the American support team. Like you could look at it and say, I'm doing that because I just like interacting with people, which is very true, right? But it's also the best way for me to run a long way because <laughs> if I just end up like really kind of getting kind of really insular into myself then I end up maybe focusing on the bits that are going to slow me down if I kind of disassociate with the with the, the pain that we discussed before or kind of like help someone out who's like you can look at it as a selfless act slowing down I don't know if I actually slapped as many asses as you as you remember but I mean that does sound <laughs> like me I'm just not 100% like in a 30 second, like the first time I met you, I wouldn't have slapped your bum straight away. Maybe that would have been the second time. But um, like at that point, in a 24 hour race, by helping someone out, right, you were also reminding your subconscious just how much of a better state you're in. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, there is a selfish part to it. It's, mm-hmm. I've referred to it as feeding off someone's misery, but I think it changes your own perception of effort. So like, I love helping other people out, but there's also probably a selfish performance part of it that, I know that if I check on someone else and say, how are you doing? Are you okay? It's good for them. It's also good for me, right? I can't hide that fact. I know it's mm-hmm. how I race. It's how I get the best out of myself. And it, it, yeah, it's part of that to do with your perception of, your, of effort. And mm-hmm. that's a, maybe that's a bit, uh, sounds <laughs> like a bit of an evil genius side of things. Yeah, I think that's, it's a, well, you know, what I think we found, you know, certainly in talking to lots of ultra runners and, other people take on intensity, you know, there's different styles that work for different people. And we evolve into somewhat that's fitting to who we are, because we're all having the same battle. And that battle is, there are some signaling systems that are 
giving us some real system data and some that are just not, you know, there's a safety system that wants us to stop, right? You know, because it's body wants to be at rest and we're trying to kick it into, mm, but when we know what's fascinating, right? Is even if you run a hundred miles and you end up sore, you know, you, you, you repair pretty quickly, you know? And so you're, You've never gone that deep. The body, the brain never really lets us go that far. We're all sort of searching for it. So, so it's good to find a strategy that works. Um, and so that you have, um, it sort of probably makes it even more appealing than to go back out there because you're not so afraid of what you're going to find. Might be part of the good advice that you could give someone is don't put it up as the enemy, but put it up as the circumstance. Do you feel that way a little bit that it makes it just that much, not easier per se, but more tolerable for you? In, in what regard? So I, I mean, yeah, since you don't, we'll you don't, yeah, you're not associating the pain as much, you're trying to enjoy yourself. Does that help, you know, go farther and harder? Yeah. Like, I mean, like in, in all regards, like I'm out there because I enjoy it, right? This is like, mm. very, there's a handful of people making like a, like a decent money or chasing fame for ultra running. Like ultimately, if you're a 24 hour runner, you do it because there is some part of you that enjoys it. And it, maybe it's not the actual act you're enjoying, but it's the, the kind of very objective measure of your own like greatest day. Like that's the, that's the nice part about it. Like what can you do? How far can you run in a day? And then there's a part of me that is intrigued by those, those physiological and psychological limits. And I like, over the last few years, like injuries, like a one chronic injury has slowed me down from the 24 hour and going longer. But on the bike, it's, I've, I've kind of been able to, to really chase those darker places. And it's actually, that's one of the things for me is because I think people are afraid of kind of really pushing too hard and, and, and coming a cropper. But actually, that's it's all part of the journey. Like if you get to a point where you, you really, really have physically or mentally pushed yourself, then it's a whole, it's, that's good, that's great. Because no one really, like how often do we actually get there? So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I enjoy like the good times. And I, there's a part of me that enjoys the, the really challenging and darker times. And mainly at the at that moment, I'm not enjoying it, but I am like definitely in retrospect, looking back and, and great, I know, just really pleased that I got to go to that place and come out the other side. And Robbie, like a couple of weeks ago, we ended up talking to Johan Steen um, and, and your name was brought up on the podcast and, you know, he's just a stud. What a, what a great guy. And, and he was talking in length about, um, you know, just the, you know, the fascination with, with where he could go and, and when, when, you know, you know, just not quitting, you know, you know, the, the whole, you know, what comes first, the end of the rope or, or the bottom of the well. And so have you, you know, with, with now ultra distance cycling, because, you know, let's face it, you know, with running, you know, the pounding after a while does take its effects. Um, are you finding that this is a really neat new avenue uh, when it comes to maybe even extending that a little bit further um, and, and trying to find your, your depth? It's, it's definitely helped me explore uh, new depths in terms of kind of psychological uh, motivations but also in like the whole sleep deprivation side of things so like when i i've had a chronic knee issue go like on the lateral chain on my right hand side that's kind of slowed me down since 
2016 onwards for the 24 hour stuff. So I've, I've done some shorter ultras and, and, and had a knee operation. I'm still working through it and I'm running at the moment, but I can't run long. So like the likes it like even if you look at Johan, right? One of the things that he, before his big breakthrough at the 24 hours, um, he went and did a six day and he came back from that six day and he, he, he then stepped it up of gear in the, in the 24 hour stuff. And you, uh, the other person who, who took that approach was Yanis Kouros. Like one of his, I think his second or third ultra was the sixth day. And I, part of my kind of theory for my own development was to step up to the 48 hour six day stuff because I thought that would help the 24 hour. Um, so whilst in the last few years, I haven't been able to do that in the running, I did think like, like although the kind of like the physical conditioning is different, the, the psychological lessons you can learn on the bike side of things and the fueling and the sleep deprivation, maybe in the long term will help me with some of the uh, longer, longer running races. So, yeah, like the, the biking, I, I enjoy it in its own part, right? Because you see a whole lot more. You're not just going around like a 2K loop. I, I crossed the whole of Europe last night on last summer, like 2000 Ks in one bike ride. It was brilliant. And like we saw different mountains, you go up and down, you're competing. And there's a, there's a fantastic community. Because it's really individual. Um, you can't, like, you're not supposed to cycle anyone else. You can't draft. You, like, you can't have any support. Uh, you got to, you, you start with the kit you've got and you can buy stuff along the way, but you can't have any kind of set crew and support. So it's very much you're on your own. Um, and yeah, and the people are just wonderful because you, like, they are very, they're self deprecating. They've got a good sense of humor because if you get to a point where there's a storm and you're cycling down a mountainside and one of your, like, your rear brake cable snaps and, and like you've fallen over, you clicked into your pedals and you've fallen over. If you can't at that moment laugh, you're not going to get anywhere in this longer distance cycling stuff. So the people have just been, I really, really have enjoyed the community and it's, yeah, it's just, it's really nice. So I, that, the, the ultra distance cycling is in its own right has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I spent a reasonable amount of time, riding uphill uh, and you know if you get to Europe there are some very long uphills you can go for 10 or 20 miles I mean it just keeps going and I find that it is different than the the running strain you know because it's a uh, you can you know you can't really fight gravity as much as you would like and there's a point when if you slow down too much you just fall over so <laughs> with running you can go down to almost a walking speed and you can keep moving, but with the bike, you got to just, you know, it's got to work. And uh, I, I found that over time, that that same kind of, um, you know, place to go mentally, though, and get into the just the rhythm of it. Uh, and so I do think that there is a lot of lesson that can be learned from the crossover between so long distance cycling and long distance running. Is- I remember my uh, the first race I finished. I did DNF the first one across the Pyrenees, um, and then the first one I finished was from uh, Vesuvius in Naples down to you had to go up and down Mount Etna, an active volcano on Sicily. <laughs> I'd been this is about five days in. It's it's the early. It's kind of there's a storm going on, so it's absolutely soaked to the bone. I'm wearing all the clothes I've got at this point, which is about four layers. Um, like full waterproofs, down like jacket underneath, like two pairs of gloves. I had. Do you have marigolds in the in like over over the Europe? You guys like it's mm-hmm. like a washing up gloves. You yep. wear them when you're doing your wash. I had them on right because they're good for the for the wet. 
and I, I'd been awake for about 22, 23 hours. Um, and I kept falling asleep. And I, I had a dynamo light on the front, which kind of, you turn the wheel, it powers the light, right? I was going so slowly up this hill that the light kept turning off. So I kept nodding off in the dark because I was half asleep and the light kept flicking on and off. So I didn't know where I was going. And I literally was cycling so slowly that I could, I could topple over. And yeah, at that point, and it was really, really horrible weather. And it was those situations you think if I just, if I sit down and like curl up here, no one's going to find me for quite some time. I've probably been, I've soaked to the bone. And then you got to the top and you get up there and that drive. And then it was 10 miles of downhill. And I had to stop halfway down because I couldn't use my hands on the brakes anymore. They were so cold. And I had to like jog on the spot for a little while. Because I was like, right, I, I, can get, I couldn't get warm on the bike. So I stopped the bike and jogged on the spot mm. just to warm up. And then, uh, and then I got back on for a while and I went down and my hands were working for a bit longer. And then I got like, I had to jump off again and, and jog on the spot. I, I, could, I could have jogged down probably quicker than I cycled. Mm. Yeah, so Robbie, like, you know, you're, you know, the, the distances and the, the time uh, allotment is, is staggering with, you know, the ultra distance cycling and, and the running that you've done as well, too. You know, and what I've always found when it comes to ultra distance anything is that, you know, it gives you a lot of opportunity to have your highs, but also have your, your lows. And you're going to have a high and then drop down to a low and a high and a, to a low. And, you know, Joe has, has, has got a saying, he's, he's said it numerous times, is that, you know, after these events, your highs are your lows. Um, I think I'm saying that right, Joe. Am I? The lows are your highs. The lows, yeah, the opposite. The, the lows are your highs. Would you, would you, would you agree to that? And, and would you, would you, you know, think that you know, hey, there were the moments out there that you thought, you know, there, there was no means to go on. Like you were, you were so depleted on four or five different levels. But then later on, after the event, you look back and you think, you know, that was a flashbulb moment in my life and something that I've learned or something that I'll always remember. Can you think of any any instance? I'm sure you just told us one, but any other instances like that? They're, they're the moments you're most proud of, right? Because you've overcome all the odds <laughs> that at the time seemed insurmountable. So like, I think I've said to people at the time, anyone can, in a 24 hour race, anyone can run well when everything's going, going great. Mm. But it's those low moments. If you can make distance in the low moments, if you can put a smile on your face and keep moving around, keep like pointlessly traveling in a circle, it's not like a point to point race where you're like, okay, this next step is taking me closer to the finish. In 24 hour race, you might as well just sit down or just lie on the floor and cry for a while because that's getting you to the finish line just as quickly as sprinting, right? So what's the point? But if you can make, and that's where I think like 24 hour running, if you can, yeah, those are the ones you should be proud of. Those moments when, like, I, as a runner, yeah, I've had, had a lot of them. Um, and I think, like, some really good runners, look at uh, John Olsen, the US runner, when he won at Steenberg. And what struck me about his performance was that there weren't those lows. Maybe there were, and we didn't see them, but his pacing was just metronomic the whole way through. Whereas then you look at someone like Camille winning an Albi, she... Like she takes those lows and makes it her own. She's seven thirty minute mile for a low whilst like crapping herself. But like, that's that's impressive, and that's a, like and that's that's the different levels of doing it. But I think if you can aim for the metronomic, like I, I say, simmer, don't boil, kind of like tick the whole way through. That's great. But those low moments, yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> I was racing this last weekend. It was an uphill race. I had low moments in that. Yeah. It was only like <laughs> 71 minutes of racing. <laughs> Bemoaning that my training partner, who was a couple of minutes ahead, we were a very similar level, he's 10 kilograms lighter than me so i was just bemoaning that like why did i convince myself to enter an uphill only race with my <laughs> with the guy i trained with was just literally like if he ran with a big backpack that would be how i was that day but um I, yeah you have those moments even that in, in a short distance because it's intensified but i the last one that i that i am proud of right was back in um october last year i returned to that same race that finished in Etna and uh, I cycled for I think at this point I hadn't slept in 36 37 hours um, cycling on open black busy roads um, and I was trying to see just how uh, how much I could push myself in that regard and physically I'd fueled well I'd kind of I wasn't sleepy I was strong enough like I was going out to climb and cycling fine but mentally I was in a real, real low. And I sat down on the side of the road. I had myself, I'm not really good at crying. So I think I tried to cry and just <laughs> didn't cry really well. Like I just kind of like, just felt really, really sorry for myself. Like as if I was crying. I was like, oh yeah, the world. And I, I, I called my wife quickly and I was like, oh, this is, I don't see the point. Was, why am I doing this? This road is rubbish. And, and I was kind of a little bit scared about the night ahead and like everything just seemed insurmountable at that point. Pointless and insurmountable. And then I was like, right, I'm going to cycle ahead. I got to the next town and, and, and then I found out where the nearest hotel was because you can stay in hotels and stuff. You just got to find them. Um, and I found one that was closed and they opened it up for me and I slept in this freezing cold room and because you're so depleted I was I remember just shivering for ages trying to get into a I tried to have a shower and I turned it on and the cold water went towards <laughs> me and it sent me into a shiver so I'm in this cold room just shivering my like just yeah and I had about three hours sleep and got up set off felt fantastic had another like another I cycled 24 hours straight and finished the race like, like and had a fantastic next day really yeah. really loved it so and that was yeah I look back at that as is, that's what I'm in it for. I'm in it for, I'm not there to, you know, what are you in it for? You're in it to, to go to the bottom of the world and to see what happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this is <laughs> an important point and it's what scares so many people away from what it is we talk about. You know, the, when Dave and I thought of a podcast, we're like, oh, we need another podcast, like a hole in the head, right? You know, there's hundreds <laughs> of thousands of them, but what we set out to do is to try and understand the science and the spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. And it's not, intriguing doesn't mean that you're the you know, fastest or the best. It just means you're like, you're intently curious or you have a lot of courage or you have this drive or whatever it is, you just wanna find out. And we've talked a lot about this, exactly what you're talking about right now is, it's really almost a privilege to go find out what that state is like, you know, that state of difficulty. And then what can you do? I, uh, I ran this Tahoe 200 a few years ago and I was trying to record myself to make a little video. And I remember very distinctly, I have it on film, like saying to myself, you feel terrible right now. You do, I know it. I'm like, I'm in a really bad way, but this will end soon. And, it does, you know, the, the system works its way out. 
but you have to have some confidence that you can get out of it just like you did. You found a way to do that. And so, you know, maybe to some of our listeners, part of the exploration is finding others who can go with you, who can help you through some of those first times when it's sort of strikingly difficult and, you know, you pace someone to their first 50 miler and their mile 35 and you, you give them a little push on the back and say, no, we're not stopping now. You know, we can go slowly, but do you, one of the things, you know, Robbie is once you've had that experience, you know, you said you do some coaching, like, do you try and bring some of that spirit to the, to the people you coach so they can be ready for it and then accept it and go on? I'll just, I'll touch on one other thing you said, um, just briefly before yeah. there, you said about having someone help you to when you get to those to those darker places. I, I could flip that on its head, right? And say that too often we have too much of a support network and too many exits that when we get, when the going gets tough, when those options are there to, to make it easier to, to sit down and have it like, or to, to, to leave with a friend or to have someone to lean on, we don't really dig to our deepest places. And it's not, I think there's a fear of failure and, and, and failure shouldn't be something people are afraid of unless it's like a life-threatening situation. And he, like, you should, like, there's nothing wrong. Like if you go, if you push yourself too far on an ultra, even if you're without that kind of safety network, you're still in a relatively safe environment because you're, mm. like, someone's going to come along the trail a little while, they're going to check you're okay. They're going to realize you're just having like a massive bonk. They might give you a gel and they'll carry on. Whereas I think like, if we give ourselves, if we push ourselves into those situations and don't be afraid of it going wrong, kind of look to see if we can encourage like, people to relish that, that learning opportunity, then maybe it's a bit different. Yeah, I think there's that, we can find out a little bit more. We don't need those. We, we need less support than we often think we do. Mm. And when it comes down to the science side of things, one of my really like, favorite um, bits of uh, science around our, our, the, the effort there and the motivation side of things is uh, there's a guy called Professor Samuel McCora and he looks at the, our perception of effort. So all the physical messages that come up from our body go up into our brain, right? They're great. They all go up there and how we perceive it is a psychological part of it. So we can all be in pain. You could be in the same level of pain. Say I often use the example of two, two clones running a marathon and clone A is at mile, they're both at mile 20 Clone A, they're both running six minute miles. Clone A is being overtaken by people. Clone B is overtaking people. Physically, they're identical. The situation's identical. But actually, psychologically, the person overtaking people is going to feel a lot better. Right? So somehow, like, that's changed how they're, their own perception of the effort. But if you take that information... So when you're on a Tahoe 200 and you're recording your own voice, there is, you, and you say you're having a tough time and someone nips past you, right? That's gonna make you feel worse. I've seen it at the 24s, you see it at the World Champs where someone's head drops yeah. and someone comes past, they feel worse. But if they overtake someone, even if it's someone in the open race, who's like mm -hmm. someone's great grandmother, they still feel better about themselves. Like, and it's like, we can use that information. We can, we, we can kind of trick the body and trick the mind into kind of feeling better about our own perceived effort. And part of that, is, Really simple, just smiling, right? You ever seen that study that come out with Kipchoge and yeah, like he was used on all the articles, he had a big smile, but it's that that's a small trick and like just smiling, telling mm -hmm. ourselves a joke, checking in on someone else who's in a worse state than you, as I said before, changes your own perception of effort. So mm -hmm. there's, yeah, that's 
I, I like I I used to I started coaching nine ten years ago, but I played like it became my job maybe eight seven eight years ago now. Um, and I was an athlete who coached, and now I probably see myself as a coach who runs in cycles. Um, it's uh, like, I, uh, like the last a few years ago, I did a, a master's degree in performance coaching. I've really it, it kind of feels like my profession rather than just something I do to try and support my running. It, I am a coach now who does a bit of running and, and, and cycling rather than the other way around. And I, I try and bring my own experience to everyone that I coach. But what's important is to find out about their experience. So like, uh, you can't, like every individual person is totally different. And that's this, that's not just training, but also motivation and, and what gets them through the toughest times. And yeah, it's, it's not just as simple as kind of like, put on a smiley face like I have and, and do what I do. Because I think, uh, my own situation comes from not just my running, but from, yeah, from, from where I, how I was brought up and my childhood and my role models, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. My coach and people, um, like Dan Lawson, who Dave uh, slightly knows, is a, another 24 hour runner. That man is, I know no one else like him in the whole world. I don't think there's anyone else like him. So you can't coach him like everyone else because he's totally different. Mm -hmm. So it's, and to try to convince him to, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've got started waffling now. Maybe I'll have a drink yeah. and see if he can bring us back on track. Yeah, no, no, but Robbie, it all, it all makes sense, right? Um, it all makes sense because, you know, what I've seen from you and, and to be honest with you, everybody freaking talks about you in the 24 hour, the world, you know, championships crew, right? It's, it's, oh, there's Robbie. There's, you know, there's Robbie smiling. There's Robbie being happy. And, 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 uh, and it all comes down to per perception of effort. Um, and that, you know, if you're out having a good time, wishing, you know, a good time with everybody else. And, you know, I think you told Johan, you know, uh, anybody who's out there cheering, never pass them by without, you know, giving them a cheer back. Um, and, you know, and it's worked. You know, we get some phenomenal runners. I remember even at the World Championships, there's a lot of these, you know, 210, 215, 220 marathoners that are all there. And they're, they're way fitter than, no, no offense, Robbie, they're way fitter than both me and you. But yet, you know what? They're, they're out there failing halfway in. And, you know, when they're all super serious and, you, you know, if somebody wishes them, you know, uh, you know, starts cheering for them and they, you know, they just, you know, they're focused straight, looking straight forward. And they're, they're very, very, very serious. And so, you know, this is something that's really unique, Robbie, to the world, I think, right now, where, you know, we've been taught, especially with ultra distance, anything is that, you know, it's, it's important to take yourself very, very seriously, where on the, on the other hand, and maybe I'm not saying it's not right, you know, because I'm not saying that you're not taking yourself seriously. It's just that maybe we're taking ourselves a little bit too seriously. And when it comes to your coaching, maybe that's a really unique, interesting angle where, you know what, you know, you could read the, the lore of running. And you can learn about, you know, zone one, zone five, zone, all that, you know, all the physiological stuff is kind of set in stone when it comes to how do you train for a fast marathon. But then I look at guys like you, and then I look at Camille Heron having a big stupid smile on her face when she's breaking the world records. And I look at Kip Shoge running, you know, a two hour marathon with a big stupid smile on his face. And maybe, maybe you're onto something, Robbie. This, like, first of all, 
Camille's not smiling. She's definitely grimacing. That's a grimace <laughs> the whole way around. She looks like she's smiling. You kind of look and you go, she's smiling? And she's like, yeah. I'm not sure if she's smiling or not. Sometimes it's a smile, but I think at 50-50, it's a grimace slash a smile. I'm sure she won't mind me saying that. I've, I've, I've looked and kind of not been... I'm just going to turn my light one second. It's gone dark in my room. Yeah. Well, I was about to say it's getting dark in there. You're looking better, Robbie. Oh, Sorry, yeah. it's evening here. Dark. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think you're onto something. I mean, there's a thousand and one coaches out there in the world, and I'm just gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna plug you for a second, Robbie. Anybody who so wants I run off to, it was a, it's not really good transcend. Well, yeah, anybody who wants to transcend uh, when it comes to kind of that perception of effort and that that mind body experience. I mean, you know, give Robbie a a, a, a shout. And, uh, you know, you can take him on as a, as a coach. I mean, you know, there's a thousand and one coaches out there, but somebody who's really willing to do the work on that end, that's, that's, that's great stuff. I am, um, with the coaching side of things, I am, I'm actually fully booked for coaching. So please. Oh, okay, never mind that last comment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the, um, like I would say that from the coaching point of view, I think, <sighs> You have to understand, as you said, the, the, the fundamental like physiological principles. Yeah, there are a few different ways to string a cat, right? But it's not, it's complicated and you have to understand the complex side of things. But when you're tr translating that to an athlete, it doesn't have to be complicated. And it becomes part of my, the master's was doing a, a uh, I did a dissertation project. We, one of the, the first, the pilot project was what makes a successful coach-athlete relationship in ultramarathon. Um, and how do we measure that? And, and, and it came out like, actually, we measure it from how long those relationships last. Because mm. results are great, right? If I get a, an athlete that comes to me, say it's a, uh, like a female athlete, 230 marathon, right? And then she wins a couple of 50 miles. Am I a great coach or is she just a great athlete? And I just happen to be around, right? I could give her bad training and she would still win those races, right? So that doesn't make me a great coach. You seem like plenty, you could just be chasing good athletes and, and they get some good results. But look at the longevity of those relationships. Uh, and, and, and actually, are people staying with the coach through, through thick and thin, up and down? And apart from kind of like, maybe like a Stockholm syndrome situation, um, like generally that is a, a sign that the coach athlete relationship is healthy, the progressions in there, the communications there. So then like the main project was what makes a, a good coach, right? So if someone is looking for a coach, like you can, you can message me, maybe I'll have an opening, but equally what the things to look for are someone that you can communicate with someone that's not got so many athletes that they can't actually speak to you as a, as a, on a one-to-one -one basis, someone that's going to learn about you as an individual. Because the training that you do, whilst there are the foundational like, principles of physiology, finding out what's right for you as an individual involves a coach learning about you mm -hmm. and learning what makes you tick and, what, and a little bit on what stresses you out and what's kind of happening in your greater context, but also in your past that's going to take you to where you want to achieve, like what you want to achieve in the future. So yeah, communication from the start on, if you're sending emails to coaches and it, and they're not replying, that's a, not a great sign straight away. So no. like talk to a couple of coaches, find someone that you get on with. And like, for me, like obviously I joke and I laugh and that's part of my coaching. If you're more serious and you don't like someone who jokes and laughs, no matter how well they coach, that's not going to work for you, right? If I got like someone super serious, maybe someone with, like a military background, 
and like the first call, I call them a dickhead or something. They're like, that's not going to work, is it? They're not going <laughs> to like that. So it's uh, find a coach that works for you. Talk to people. So, so it's all about communication. Yeah, and I think that, you know, often, you know, to your point, we could all sort of live without a coach. The difference is they have to do something more for you than you do for yourself, right? And so um, that communication is part of how that happens by getting and understanding people. Uh, and, you know, it is, there's, a, I like the accountability that comes with a coach because you feel that there's someone else who's in it with you. And then sometimes we'll let ourselves down, but we won't let others down. And so there is a lot of complexity. I agree with you. Uh, but you have to sort of be committed to the idea that together you're better. Um, and that, you know, whether you, no one's trying to take credit, I think for the athlete coach relationship, I think it's symbiotic and when it works, it just, it works. And you wouldn't know what was the difference maker other than together it worked. So it's, it's definitely, I think like as a coach, your support staff, I think that's, we see a lot of people, often the credit is taken by the coach. Well, there's probably, for me, there's more credit taken than, than needs be. As a coach, you're a support staff. You're there to, to put that athlete, to help them achieve what they want to achieve, but also just to, to put them on a pedestal. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you can be a bad coach and an athlete can still get good results. It yeah. doesn't, like, it's down to them. And you can be a good coach and an athlete can still get bad results because they can be struggling and, and it's just, I think it's, it's a, I, I love it as a job. It's my job, it's my profession. And I work with a whole range of people, just really lovely people that, that I get to help them enjoy their, their hobby and their passion as well. So it's, yeah, I, I just, I just, I really like being like the, the coach and I have a coach myself. It's again, it's for that accountability for that. For me, it's not about accountability, about giving up. It's probably a little bit about not destroying myself too much on a daily basis. Um, not pushing too far, knowing when to kind of go like to pull back and, like someone said to me, like, why have you got a coach if you think you know about it yourself? So, well, because it's great to, I learn from my coach. My coach is a friend of mine, but it, and it, it, I learn from him. We, we work together on it. Maybe, yeah, with the plans a bit more kind of mutually constructed, but, but that's what it should be with anyone. Any athlete and coach, it shouldn't be me. I never tell anyone what to do. Mm -hmm. I try and help people make the right decisions. So, yeah, there's a training plan that, ideally you build with the athlete because then that helps them have a sense of ownership over that plan. And, and they feel that actually I'm not just following someone else's idea. This is something we've built together. And mm -hmm. that comes into things like self-determination theory. It really helps the motivation side of things. If you feel like you've got some ownership, if you feel like you're part of something a bit bigger than just yourself with the running. So these are all little fact, little bits that lead into the successful coach athlete relationship, but it's, yeah, if you can, if you can work with a coach to build a plan, that you work on together, you are more motivated and more accountable to that plan. Yeah, well, so Robbie, let's talk for a second about um, goal setting. You know, a guy like you, 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 you set big audacious goals. Um, you, you have for years and, and it seems like that's, that's what's coming down the pipe for you. That's what you're gonna be doing moving forward. Um, with your athletes as well too, at what point do you end up saying, okay, no, I think you should drive that goal even further? Um, you know, let's develop a really strong one-year plan. Or at what point do you say, okay, let's pull it back? You know, I, I see some people in my life that end up setting these massive goals or like, I want to break the world record within the next six months. And you're like, well, let's hold it back, pull it back. Because when we, we all have to have reasonable wins ahead of us. 
that we can see that are that are all reasonable in order for us to to drive the next goal and the next goal. So 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 at what point do you do you, do you, do you push your athletes to create you know to, to create larger goals? And what point do you end up getting them to, to pull them down? And 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 as well to you you as an athlete, where 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 do you kind of stand on that? I guess it depends on the athlete, right? Right. Because everyone comes, I've had people come up and they want they want to break the world record and you people come in and they just, they just want to get down like the end of the road. And actually it depends on the athlete to, to whether they need kind of to build the bigger goals, if they need to kind of pull it back a bit. Um, and I, I, so often with someone's goals, are, I, I'm never one to say, because I, I have very big goals myself um, and I'm quite happy. People have said to me in the past, it's just a bit unrealistic and I've, I've gone on to achieve that goal or, I failed miserably and I've tried again. Um, I'm never going to tell someone that they can't achieve what they're setting out unless it's like sit like plain, plain ridiculous. And then, then we have to have a hard talk. Like, um, but what I think, like what I try and do is so I word it is that I take that brilliant goal and I take their current level of ability. And if I could just bring them closer together, right? So you work on some interim goals that help them realize that maybe that top end goal is a little bit too far away. Well, actually, yeah, the 210 marathon is fast. Okay, right. Uh, uh, but when I, and, and they're from their current 330 situation, and you're like, okay, but we will bring that 330 up. So you're now at 315, right? And now you're at 255, brilliant. And we've brought it down from 210 to 235. So now we're a bit closer. So I think, yeah, just a, normally it's a, a process of, of, of helping them, the athlete, like if you tell an athlete that they can't achieve something, that's not, it's not healthy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to, they're either going to get demoralized by that or just kind of think you don't know what you're talking about and lose that trust in their coach. Right. If you can help them come to their own realization that maybe it's better off setting a process goal towards that longer one and seeing if we get there, there's no harm in going for an audacious goal and failing right if you put the right timeline you're willing to put the the effort in and you're willing to accept that maybe it's just not possible fine just go for it right and and and, and try and if you fall short right okay but say like you and i dave right we're both like okay probably similar to, to me we want to win the world 24 hour champs one day right it's not an unreasonable thing to suggest is it um if we both, I mean, like, yeah, there's enough years in the, in the future, maybe both we can, uh, both of us can achieve that. But if we, like, in, in 10, 15 years' time, me and you having a chat on a, I don't know what will be a, like, podcast by then, um, but, and neither of us got there. But we both gave it our best. We tried, we fell short. Alexander beat us every side in time, hmm. setting off like a lunatic. Um, that's, you're never going to, like, regret that, are you? You're not going to be like, Oh, I'm really, I really wish I had chosen a slightly lower goal, like finishing second. I, well, you might as well try for the top end, right? Because, and again, but it's realistic because we've got that previous experience in that sphere. We've tried, we've got close to it. You know what's like is needed. So yeah, it's not too unrealistic. If you turn around to me and said, actually, Robbie, I want to be the world's best show jumper. I'd be like, <laughs> should, like, okay why why dave why do you want to be a, do you even own a horse dave and you'd be like no i don't and you're like okay well let's let's sit back and explain my your motivations i don't know yeah but just stick to running mate yeah perfect oh, 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 yeah i got it he's pretty good at it by the way he's uh he's setting out for a few uh 
big numbers this year. So we're, uh, we're going to at least watch and cheer along on as he goes. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's good advice, Robbie. I think that, uh, you know, you've turned it into both, you know, your fun and your work for the most part uh, in our sport or in endurance sports, most people have to do both. You can't really, you know, Dave still works as massage therapist. You talk to Pete Kostelnik and he's got an IT job and you talk to, you know, it's like there's very few who can make it into a full-time job and they make this big dedication and so in that regard, you have to sort of balance out your goals with your life and you can still have some big goals. And, um, you know, when you're doing some of the coaching, I'm sure you spend time with people on that balance, right? Because, the, oh, well, this is more important. That's more important. And, uh, but it's, it's just, it's embedded in the nature of what we do. Cause there are a lot of hours required in this sport. If you, I don't know, let's say you were a tennis player, you might play two hours of tennis a week, three at most. But if you're going to get out and do ultra stuff, you could do 10 or 20 hours a week. So you got to get to be a good time manager and figure it all out. Depends how good a tennis player you want to be. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, right? Yeah, yeah. True. I mean, well, yeah, no, in that, in that regard of anything, yeah. Uh, I would say endurance sports do push you probably a few more extra hours like but but the point is a good one i think it's about aligning your activity your goals and figuring out how to you know we like to say there's 168 hours in the week you know you can you can use them as you see fit uh and make that work do you see as you've transitioned from the ultra running and now do ultra cycling that you need more time because in cycling you tend to ride for longer periods of time or no uh, you can get away with more. You see a lot of people doing lots of training on the cycling world. Um, so like some of the people I'm competing with, like even the, the top guys, they're like 20, 25, 30 hours a week on a regular basis. Um, but I think there's still some people at that top end there that aren't putting in that huge, huge hours. Um, even today, like today's an easy day for me. I did a 40 minute run in the morning. I've done a, a 50 minute cycle in the evening, which involved basically 40 minutes of going uphill and 10 minutes of going downhill. Um, <laughs> again, if you're short on time, you change how you do things, right? Because if I'd have done that 50 minute cycle on the flat, it would have been a look that the difference, the balance would have been a bit different if I'd have, yeah, I think you can, It again, it depends. I don't think you need to do 20 hours a week, 15 hours a week to be good at ultramarathons. Um, I think when I was training for Turin, I, my biggest week was 112 miles back then. And that was the peak week. Uh, the average is probably 85, 90 per week. I think I went over 100 for three, three weeks. And that was uh, maybe 13, 14 hours. But most weeks it was 10 or 12. You had on like an hour and a half, two hours over the week of strength and conditioning. Um, some other little bits of bobs you might pop in there to, to, to your break. Actually, you can make that work. And especially if you're splitting up into double days and, and you're not doing these massive long back-to-back weekends, which for some people, I know Dave likes a lot more mileage than I do. Um, the, like that's, that, again, it's part of what you feel you need to get to that start line. And, and that's so important as well, that on that start line, you feel like you're prepared. I chatted to one of my athletes the other day. It was actually a very good tennis player before she did a um, ultramarathon as well. So she could answer that tennis player ultramarathon question quite well. But the... Uh, the um, 
I chat to her and I said, what would make you feel confident in terms of long run on the start line? Because mm. like, that's what matters. I can mm. say like, like uh, this long run or like actually what's physiologically necessary is, is probably a lot less than people. Like the consistency of your training is much more important than how long your longest run is. Mm-hmm. But if you're new and you're doing your first 50 miler, there's a lot you can learn and there's a lot of value in, in, in doing a longer run. Because if you're like, take say Dan Lawson, for example, who's run God knows how many long runs over the years, it, the value of that longer run is lesser for him, right? Because he, he's not going to learn as many lessons from it. And from a physiological point of view, he's very well adapted from focusing on the consistency from years and years and years of endurance. But saying that, he did a, he was part of the IOU solidarity run last weekend and he ran out of water on the way around and suffer because of that. So he's still learning lessons. It was valuable for him to do that in the training run still before he does his next race. So yeah, like, I don't know, I've forgotten what question I was answering again now. Um, I do this. This is why I go around 24 hours. Uh, talking. Well, well, this is perfect. And this is exactly why we were able to run for two hours together. Cause I don't think <laughs> that you and I either, either, you know, stopped for a second and, and took a breath, but no, I think you're right, Robbie. I think that there's a, there's a, you know, yeah, I know I was talking to you and you, you, when you ran the 261 in Torino, um, you, you know, your longest run was in 25 or 30 miles or something rather. It wasn't, it wasn't very far. It was basically like training for a marathon. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, and you talk to Camille Heron and, and, and she's training, she doesn't really do long, long days. She does more, you know, speed work and back-to-back runs and, and on and so forth. So, well, I agree with you. I think it's, it's one of those things that that uh, that you know, people are figuring out that you really don't need to run as much in order to run a, a successful ultra marathon. But let's jump into the whole positive uh, positivity and perspective piece for a little bit because one of the things that you stand out about you, Robbie, is that you're just so unique when it comes to your you know what you bring into the mix when it comes to your positivity and and just how at any moment when everybody else in the world is crumbling you're able to have this, this, this really great perspective of, yeah, it could get worse or, uh, you know, and, and so people are cheering you on and you go back and you cheer them on just as much. Um, these are spectators that are comfortable on the side of the trails. I mean, is there any little nuggets that you could end up giving our audience about, you know, the positivity, positivity and perspective piece where, you know, somebody could take something away and go, okay, you know, I've learned a lot from listening to the Courtney DeWalter interview, or I took a lot from listening to this interview, but Robbie brings something very specific about perspective or, or positivity or attitude into the mix. Any, any really, really good nuggets? You want something really deep, don't you? Deep I do. I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking for like a here you go. I'll moment. give you one. Yeah. So here you go. So take the stoic philosophy that the obstacle is the way, right? The, the whole like idea that whatever happens, right? and this is what I look at back at Torino, right? Whatever happens in your race has happened, but it's now part of your, your journey to your best ever day. So in Torino, I had some stomach issues in the first six hours. I slowed down. I ran with the German all over you for a little while, right? That then set me on a path to my best ever day. If I hadn't had that stomach issue, I would have run too fast in the first 12 hours and I probably wouldn't have run and finished third in the world. So I had the issues earlier. I slowed down. I then I, I was on a whatever kind of uh, time, time plan that I ended up running with you for a couple of hours. That was a really good boon to my own uh, uh, run. It was past some, some time really nicely. Um, and then 
that kind of obstacle that was initially was the problem for me was felt like it was going to derail my whole race became a key factor in my success so i guess on that particular day so i guess in, in any situation you're in you can try whatever's happening if you're on the trail and your pole snaps right and you're like oh what am i going to do right okay now i can i'm carrying a little bit less weight so i haven't got to carry this other pole my arm's going to be free to eat a bit more any kind of horrible situation you've got right oh like i've got a blister coming up okay well at least that's going to distract from the pain in my legs um oh god like i've run out of of, of gels oh well at least i haven't got to eat any more gels i can eat these sandwiches instead like anything you've got right oh, like okay I've, I've, oh, I've run a bit low on water it's got a bit hot i've got to slow down a little bit right so that could be if you pushed you hard it could be the end of your race you're thinking oh, i can't run to my best but you slow down a bit you save your legs a little bit. You get through that section, you fill up your water again, and actually you then have a stronger second half because you've had a, to adapt to the obstacle of the first half. So that's, that. yeah, I would go with a stoic approach to it. So whatever happens, there is, you can, even if it's the most ridiculous, the kind of, you can find a positive to any, if you fall over, well, at least you've had a couple seconds to lie down and rest, right? Just find anything, that, like if you cannot find a positive, uh, then call me up i'll give you my number and then i'll find a, an obscure positive to your your absolutely horrible situation i love that that is just that good enough that's with that's with that's the best wisdom that we've had that we've had on this podcast in the last 42 episodes i i love that that's yeah perfect. i have uh my funny i'll make it fast but um i was doing a rim to rim to rim crossing and the grand canyon by myself on the fourth of july weekend it was 120 degrees and for as much as I filled up my camel back with water, I ran out every time before the next water station. I got to a point where I was, my brain was boiling. I was so thirsty that I thought if I could just get a few drops out of the tube of the camel back, that would be good. So I go to take the camel back off. And as I do, my phone went flying out of it and down on a ravine. And, but it landed <laughs> screen facing up and I was like, oh, that's so great, because I was so excited it was there. But then I had to climb down into the ravine to get it, and it still worked. And so I was pretty happy that, you know, what was a pretty difficult circumstance, to your point, I had this little bit of humor, which was like, okay, well, you know, you got to laugh now, because otherwise, you know, it's going to be more difficult, so... And I bet that you stretched out quite nicely on the climb down into the ravines, probably helped your range of motion. Like there's, there's plenty of positives there. It stopped you for a minute from running in that heat. The ravine was probably sheltered a little bit. So you got into the shade for a couple of yeah, minutes, yeah. getting your phone and much better seconds after that, you probably cooked even more. Yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. it was, it was a good one for sure. You know, Robbie, it's a, uh, it's great. And I think that, you know, when we, I've always sort of the chasing tomorrow has always been a theme for me in my life. And I always tell people come chase tomorrow with me because, you know, we always think it's going to be better than today because it's our choice. Right. And so how would you characterize your chasing tomorrow? Sort of what's, what's next for you? What's next for me. So I have a couple of bicycle races. I'm hoping go ahead at uh, the end of April, but like the, I guess like, I try and make sure that tomorrow is brilliant by, by enjoying today as much as I can and doing what I do today and focusing on what I've got right now. So like I, even in training or focusing on my nutrition or 
getting like some uni work done just so that I know that the next day is going to be a bit better. So I suppose like I chase tomorrow by doing the best I can on each individual day. And then I know that down the line, when I get to, so like my next race is April 30th. And I know that my motivation, making sure I do every little bit right, will, will give you the best day I can have on the, on the, when I get to there. And I suppose, it, and it works both ways, right? It's easier to focus on how to enjoy today when you know it's taking you somewhere. And uh, like, yeah, so I, I just, I, deep down, the, the one thing I would love to get back to is more 24 hour running in the future. And I'm kind of focusing on just improving a little bit of a time. I'm running 40, 50 miles a week at the moment. Probably my longest run in the last couple of years has been two or three hours, but I'm progressing. So again, it's, I'm focusing on progressing on my own journey. So I'm chasing tomorrow in the hope that I just, it's going to be a little bit better each day. And uh, one day we'll slap Dave's ass again as I overtake him on the final <laughs> stages of a 24-hour race on yeah. uh, both of us. I'll let you run a good distance, but it's still going to be lower than mine. That's all, that's all I'll say. I don't know about that, Robbie. We'll, we'll see. So, so you know, my, you know my, my introduction and, you know, anybody who's listened to this entire podcast, you know, I know my introduction lifted you know, Robbie, uh, to, you know, kind of a, a, a God status. You know what, if you listen to the honest hour, you know what, I, I'm just, every time I talk to you, Robbie, it's, I'm, I'm blown away by your wisdom and I don't know, just your perspective and in your attitude. And so I want to thank you so much for, for joining us on the Chasing Tomorrow podcast and, uh, anybody else, um, you know, wants to find out more about Robbie's coaching or anything, where, where, where can they go? Any, any, any websites you want to share with our, our audience? I got a website, robbiebritton.co.uk, but I also have a running website called fastrunning.com. And that's normally where I put training and, and kind of motivation stuff on there. I'm, I'm terrible at social media, like Twitter and Instagram. It just takes time. Mm-hmm. I post like once a week and then uh, maybe I'll do the odd uh, picture of my dogs. So maybe just don't go looking for me. Just go out for a run. Just go out for a run instead. <laughs> you can look on websites. I mean, it's just put your phone down, go out for, for a run. <laughs> well, thanks, Robbie. Really appreciate it. It's great spending some time with you and uh, we wish you the best going forward. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Robbie. Well, Dave, now I know why you wanted to have Robbie on the podcast. What a guy he is, huh? You can just feel the smile coming through every second you talk to him. And I love your story of Robbie at the Worlds in Torino. I'm sure it made it easier for you to do that crazy kind of race with his spirit on the track. We can all learn from a guy like Robbie, and I do hope we hear more about him on the racing circuit. And well, there you have it. That's a wrap for this week. As always, a big shout out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. You can find them on www.performancetea.com. And they've given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 at checkout. And we would greatly appreciate it if you could follow us on Instagram and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would just be awesome. And as always, a huge thanks to our listeners for coming with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks.